Welcome back to Killer Fun. I'm Christy. I'm Jackie. And we're so glad you're back with us. You know, I'm glad that the listeners are back with us, but I'm really, really glad that you're back with us, Jackie. Thank you so much. We sure missed you. I missed you too. I missed missed being here for it, but you know what? You're awesome. Oh, oh, thanks. You're so sweet. (laughs) I'm not. I I tried really hard. (laughs) I appreciate you calling me sweet, but I feel like I'm right. There. Okay. <laughs> no, it's good to be back. Thank yeah. you. So today we're actually going to talk about Seven, which we didn't do last time because I couldn't talk about it without you. Oh, this movie is my one of my favorites. Yeah, it's it's okay. Mm-hmm. So now that I know that you like shows like Black Mirror, this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true because it's creepy. Dark, you're maybe a little darker than I realized. Yeah, I think I think my edge can be a little concealed. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, because you're so like your worship leader. And, <laughs> it's you know true. bubbly and kind and friendly and. You know, a teacher of piano to children. Yeah. And yet, then we have seven. A little Black dark. Mirror and Dexter, which you we'll know, talk about next time. I think it's the creative thing. You know, I, well, I yes. have a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff going on. You know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of factors to what yeah. make me me. Well, you know, isn't that what makes this all like interesting and unique is that, yeah, because my parents, they don't get why I like this stuff. Really? Which is funny because they were the ones who introduced me to Unsolved Mysteries and, you know, all the manner of, oh, what was that old cop show? Barney Miller. Oh, man, I don't remember that at all. Oh, well, it was probably before your time because my, you know, my parents are older, like much like your dad. I was about to but, say... But I don't think we watched that. I no. just, maybe we just didn't watch. And that. it was kind, it was kind of a comedy cop show. Oh, that's why my dad didn't watch it. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. He's not so much into the comedy cop shows. <laughs> well, speaking of therapy, yeah. Speaking uh, of therapy, speaking of therapy, John Doe might have benefited from it, and you know, uh, Officer Mills is definitely going to benefit for, from it. He's going to need lots of therapy. Yeah. So seven. A serial killer who bases his murders on the seven deadly sins. Thought the acting in this was really good. It's really you've well got done. three stellar, stellar, like stage stealing kind of actors yes. on this, and they are not the same characters they've been in other things, right? You know, but they still have that charisma. Yeah, they just deliver. Mm-hmm. They deliver. Yeah. It's styled several ways, so it depends on where you're looking it up, how difficult it is to find, because some places, including the movie poster, had it written out as S-E-V-E-N, but some of the movie posters had it as S-E, the number seven, E-N, and if you look for it on Internet Movie Database, that's how you have to search it. Also on the poster, and on some places on the internet, it's the hashtags that are not hashtags not hashtags hash marks hash marks hash marks marks. i was close close but really wrong (laughs) (laughs) because those aren't hashtags those aren't hashtags but you know what a hashtag is a pound sign (laughs) (laughs) i remember seeing something with a kid and they were showing him an old cell phone and like you know the kid was like 14 and this was several years ago you know young teenager looking at it why do you have a hashtag twitter wasn't even around then (laughs) 
Because it means something else. It is something else. It is something it's else. It's been That's, upcycled, though. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, sure, give it a new life. I'm totally cool with I'm that. I'm totally cool with that, too. But I, my age was revealed in the amount of time it took for me to begin calling it a hashtag. Uh-huh. Because I just couldn't shake pound I'm sign. And, and so I really had to think about that. And it's, you know, it's interesting because it's also a number sign. Uh-huh. And that kind of bothers me. This one little symbol has so much life. I'm like, other symbols need life. The interrobang. The what? <laughs> Do you not know what the interrobang is? No. I know. I kind of wish it would get used more. So it's a combination of an exclamation point and a question mark. I need that. I know. Because I always because put a little question you know, mark and an exclamation point. Exclamation point. Question mark, exclamation point, question mark. Yeah, four. When you could have this cool little glyph that either has it, the exclamation mark (gasps) inside the question mark, or a question mark and an exclamation point that share a dot. How cool is that? I think it's totally underutilized. You know why it's not popular? Why? Because it costs a lot extra to have it on a typewriter. And people didn't want to pay to have an interrobang on their typewriters. And now, in the age of computers and the internet, when we could totally have it everywhere, we don't. We need an interrobang. We do. Interrobangs are really cool. Let's start a campaign. <laughs> Let's start a campaign. And I'm going to search the App Store. Oh. I'm wondering now if they might be have a keyboard that's a unused symbols keyboard that you could add, you know, like you add your emoji keyboard or your GIF keyboards or, you know, mm-hmm. I have a Spanish keyboard, mm-hmm. right? So I can type in English and it types in Spanish, like it translates it mm-hmm. for me because yeah. I'm terrible at Spanish <laughs> and I need lots of help. So uh-huh. I wonder, we're going to have to look that up. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, the interrobang has nothing to do with Absolutely nothing, <laughs> except that maybe it deserves an interrobang at the end of the title. Um, this whole episode is going to be a spoiler alert. We're going to spoil stuff. I'm not going to spoil the ending until the end. We're going to talk about that bit. That's a good deal. The box bit. We have a box. We have a box. We're not going to talk about that until the end. So if you want to listen but not have the end spoiled, I mean, this movie is fairly old now. We, I think if you haven't seen it by now, you can probably listen and be okay with not having... Yeah, but you should go watch it. You should. And even after we've quote unquote spoiled it for you, you should still go watch it because we're not really going to spoil it. So much happens in this movie. There's no possible way we could cover it in an hour or a little over. Exactly. Yeah. So one of my favorite lines of this movie comes right at the beginning. There's an officer talking to Somerset who is Morgan Freeman. He says that uh, the crime scene that they're at is was a crime of passion. And he goes, look at the all the passion on the wall. That's amazing. Yes, it's the blood, it's the passion, and it's all over the wall. And I loved it, and I thought it was great. Anyway. It's one of those things only a jaded cop could, could come up with. Uh-huh. Yes. You know? <laughs> exactly. All right, and then we have the opening sequence, which is like... Fantastic. I was watching. Okay, so I thought I had seen this movie. I had never seen this movie before. Are you kidding? No. I, How did you miss this? Well, I think I wasn't so good with the intense movies. Oh. Like and, when this came out. And Brad Pitt is nothing but intense. This whole movie is like pretty intense. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I was watching it with headphones on my computer. And 
because the kids were home and I had a couple minutes I was watching a little bit and I like gasped and my son came running to check on me. (laughs) Are you okay? Did you find that we had been talking about something else? Did you find something that's shocking? I'm like, it has nothing to do with you. He's like, oh, I thought you were doing research on my thing. I'm like, no. (laughs) He's so sweet. He is sweet. He's very sweet, but it was funny. That's funny. Well, it is. It's a very intense movie. Yeah. I mean, and what's interesting is Morgan Freeman really plays this character that is actually kind of chill. Yeah. But he has this like smoldering intenseness underneath. And and it's interesting how how Brad Pitt's character later actually kind of calls him out on this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's really interesting their dynamic because they're basically the two sides of one coin. Yes. Yes. They're not two different coins. No. Yeah. They're the flip side. The young and the old, the yeah. yin and the yang, the optimistic and the pessimistic. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. So the opening sequence, I'm watching it. I'm like, this is amazing. This is incredible. It's like quick cuts and you see what we know to be the killer. Eventually, you kind of realize that, oh, this is the killer writing his notes, and which made me wonder because I write in notebooks all the time. And I'm like, oh, I hope I'm not like a psychopath because yeah. <laughs> like, I write in notebooks. But <laughs> I'm not, I mean, some of the stuff I write is creepy, but it's not because I want to do something creepy to anybody. Else. Yeah, if it's not a manifesto, <laughs> I think yeah. you're okay. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm watching it and I'm like, is that closer by nine inch nails? Yes, yes, oh, it is. Yes, and actually, so my husband stayed up and watched a little bit with me. Uh-huh. Um, but immediately he was like, Is that Resner? Did Resner do the music? And it took because they rearranged it. Right. You know, oh yeah. I yeah. absolutely love it. Yeah. Well, and I remember clearly that song being popular when I was in high school. So it took really a long time to get this made and it was like super influential in credit sequences post seven that it took two days to shoot it which doesn't sound like i mean it's only a two minute sequence it took them two days to shoot it and five weeks to cut it and they didn't have like after effects you know no they didn't have like the kind of computer power that we have to be able to edit this kind of stuff at that point. So a lot of it, they, that's why it took two days to shoot. Well, I know there was a lot of, uh, real effects. Yes. You know, um, not, not graphic, but you know, some real effects, but I didn't think they didn't have, well, I wonder what they were using. Cause I know they used something. They weren't like cutting and pasting. I think maybe they were a little bit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's there's a really interesting article from Empire that talks about how this whole sequence was made and that uh, they were inspired by the video for Closer with Mm -hmm. the burnt out film and stuff like that, which I thought was, which I really clearly remember that despite not having MTV or cable when I was a kid. I remember like babysitting and watching MTV late after the kids had gone to bed and this was the kind of video that was on really late. Oh, yeah. yeah and often. disturbing. Yeah. Maybe this is why I have a dark side. <laughs> I spent a lot of time watching yeah. MTV. Mm-hmm. They tried to convey not only John Doe's psychosis through the opening sequence, but also more of his personality, like the way he stirs his tea 
and the tea bag is really elegant. And then there's all this creepy stuff. So I don't know. It's it's really cool. It's really interesting to read about what they did, how they did it, um, what kind of influence it really had later on. So that's really I just neat. thought it was worth pointing out because it was two minutes of video that took somebody really 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 long time to put together and a lot of thought went into it and yeah they didn't just slap names up uh -uh. there no exactly Mm -hmm. yeah it wasn't like they took b-roll footage from the movie and grained it up and threw the the names over it not that there's anything wrong with that kind of no opening this is just interesting this was very meticulous Mm -hmm. so gluttony is the first murder sin they don't yet realize that this is a serial killer so that made me wonder can you actually eat so much that your stomach explodes yeah it was really gross it was really gross now right granted he like force fed this man and then kicked him in the stomach and later we also find out that he gave him like uh plastic pieces that were sharp maybe to aid in the yeah, he was no dummy. Yeah, I think he no. knew he needed help yes. to make this happen. But it still made me wonder. Yeah, is yeah. it possible? So when your stomach goes in, you think of it like a balloon, right? But, you know, food goes in and it expands and it doesn't really work like that. It has much more to do with your nerve inputs and your brain. Like it's more like a folded up ball, mm-hmm. you know, like an uninflated ball and your brain expands it when you start thinking about eating or when you start to eat and it expands that way. It's not so much. And that's when it starts to growl. Yes. Yes. Cause exactly. then there's air that's actually uh-huh. in there or gases that are now right. entering it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so a resting empty stomach can only hold between six and 10 ounces of fluid So not very much, but it can double or more the instant you start eating or even if you just think about eating. And then you don't feel full because your stomach is stretched. You feel full because the nerve endings have sensed that there's enough food or enough calories. That's why you feel fuller quicker when you eat a rich meal. Right. Yeah, because your nerve endings are sensing all this. It's way more complicated than a balloon or an uninflated ball yeah. It's an entire nervous system. Yeah, exactly. Of its own. It yes, actually, the gastrointestinal. Yeah, and so the, it's a, the ENS. It's a long name, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it right now, but it's called the ENS. Uh-huh. And it has um, got more nerve endings than even the top of your spinal cord. Right, it's so amazing. It's really, it's a whole nother system of intelligence. Okay. And so it's interesting to think about the fact that we have all of these things in our in our gut that actually signal our brain for things like like hunger, but other things as well. So there, it has a, a role in fight and flight. It does all of these things. In fact, in certain disease processes, the issues that we can see in the brain are actually in the stomach first. And so that's why so many gastrointestinal issues uh, accompany a lot of different diseases because really? they can actually see, um, you know, deformations of cellular structures and things like that happening in the stomach first, like Louis bodies and things of that. That's amazing. Um, And so it's really interesting to think about the fact that like, even with something like Parkinson's, you can go into the stomach and you can actually see the Louis bodies there that are created by the lack of dopamine. And so you can 
think about a future where instead of having to scan the brain for something like that, you might be able to scan the stomach. Like how much more of a point of entry is that, that we could actually see and determine and diagnose. Wow! And so it's really interesting to think about that. But then you think about all the um, cliches that we say, oh, it's a gut instinct, right? It's well, not it's a because, cliche because it's real. We actually do have some instinct that comes because the nervous system in our gut is reacting mm-hmm. even quicker sometimes than the brain does. And it actually wow. senses it and sends it to the brain and the brain goes from there, which is why, like, for instance, when you get really bad news, you might, you know, be sick to your stomach, sick to your stomach. You might like, it's all connected there. Whole nother level of intelligence going on there. Wow. Yeah. We don't think about that nearly enough. It's an interesting concept. Maybe we pay attention. Maybe we're so distracted by other things. There's so many things to be distracted by. Many of them are worthwhile. It's true. Well, and you know, like anything, we have to use our reason and our mind because we're not just animals. We have right. We have more than that. So hmm. maybe our gut instinct isn't right. And that right. happens, you know, but on the other hand, trust your instincts. So we have to, we have to play a balance. And so I think it's like, well, so now I have to balance like my emotions and my nervous system and my gut instinct. Like it's a lot to juggle. I think, I think it's hard to, to keep all of that in your mind at once. You yeah, know? it really is. If you, once you stretch out your stomach, can you really, can a perfectly healthy person's stomach explode from eating too much? Not that this man that, you know, John Doe murdered was perfectly healthy, but right. reasonably. Well, I know. think it would have been harder because he would have already had, had a, a larger stomach. Yes. Because he was already larger. Yes. Right. Well, it only takes 10 to 15 minutes for your food to start to pass from your stomach. So mm-hmm. really it's a question of how much food can you eat in 10 to 15 minutes and will that be enough to explode your stomach? And there's only ever been six documented cases of somebody's stomach exploding from having overeaten Ooh. like ever. Wow. Which, yeah, so probably not. But it's happened. Yes. Ooh. It has happened, but only six times. And there's, you know, currently somewhere between seven and eight billion people in the world. Right. You know, and that doesn't count all the people before. And those six people are already dead. So, (laughs) (laughs) boy, that went dark quick. Okay. Okay. (laughs) That's so interesting, though. Yeah. But you're right. He did help him along. He fed him these, the plastic pieces, which are the feet of the refrigerator. Oh, I didn't catch that. It's they they are little uh, they're little spikes that right. were actually in the floor. Uh, they had been, you know, pushed into the linoleum. That's why. Okay. And so they were from the fridge. That added a level I didn't even realize. Yeah, oh. it's dark. Ooh. It's dark. Gross. What I can't they understand is why the stomach doesn't revolt about it, but there be it did a little. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they found a Brad bucket. Pitt. He's so funny. Everything he does, he's got something about him that's just funny. So when he's like, we got a bucket, and he's all like, I'm in there. He's climbing underneath there, and he's a, he sticks his face in this bucket and turns a light on, and his reaction, uh, every time I laugh, so hard to pause it. Uh-huh. Yes. Just so, gross, but I'm not sticking my face in a bucket no, of vomit anytime soon. not sticking my face in a bucket of anything if I don't know what it is. That's right. Like, be careful with that yeah. mess. Uh, how did he not figure out what that was before he stuck his face I don't know, because it seems like you shouldn't have to stick your face all the way over it before you realize that that's got an odor. Yeah. Um, So I get that it's easy to make a character smart Mm -hmm. when you know 
how the story is going to go. Like you write yourself an outline and then you give your characters like smart things to say. But I was still really impressed at how Somerset, as soon as he saw greed attached to the second killing of the lawyer, that he made the connection that he needed to go back and look at the gluttony crime scene again. And as soon as he found gluttony and greed, he knew, boom, this is it. We're dealing with a serial killer who's got a sense of, I don't know. Get what? What what is that? It's like a a rightness, justification, righteousness. Righteousness. Uh, Yes. Yeah, he's got a sense of... Righteous indignation of some sort towards humanity. Yeah, exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, no, you're right. He does. He makes the connection. Yeah, pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, and nobody else had. No. Yeah, and I was like, ooh. And then he goes to the library. I'm like, oh, be still my nerd heart. He went to the library. This scene... I watching it again, it was such a favorite scene and it never really had been a favorite scene of mine before. It was just kind of as part of the movie and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But when he walked in that library, I had that moment of going, what? What he? Oh yeah. Now I know why he had to walk in that library. Cause in my mind, I literally had to remind myself when this was made mm-hmm. and I had to go, you're not buying it on Amazon and having it delivered in two days or less, you know, yeah, no. and you're not looking it up on the internet. No, you have to go. You have to go. You and have go. to look up the stuff. Yeah. So Roger Ebert had kind of a nice insight as to why Somerset had to go to the library because obviously he probably knew a lot of this stuff. Now maybe he needed to go and remind himself of it in the movie, but really what he's doing is he's referencing it for the audience. Right. Yeah. And for Mills. Yeah. Well, yes, but Mills wasn't with him. And of course he's, they talk about it off screen, I think. Well, he makes copies and puts it oh, in an envelope that's and right. gives it to Mills. That's right. So he does all this research and then he condenses it and gives it to Mills. Yeah. But we needed to know that Dante's Inferno, Milton's Paradise Lost, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, these things were things that had informed our murderer. Right. So, so it was. was. It was expository for us a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Um, it was... We were Mills. We were Mills. But what I love about Mills is that he got that and he was like, okay, that's great. And Cliff Notes. (laughs) I was like, yes. (laughs) That's a man after my heart right there. It's Cliff Notes. And for you who don't know, Cliff Notes was what we used. I know everybody uses Spark Notes now. Oh, is that what it is? It's not really Cliff Notes anymore. Yeah, we don't have to pay for it either because I can remember being like, Okay, do I have an extra eight dollars in my budget for books to go ahead and buy the Cliff Notes for Dante's Inferno? Yep, yep. Now you can just go look at SparkNotes.com. Yeah, now it's all there for mm-hmm. you for free. But I love how he's tried to read it and then he gets <laughs> so upset and mad. He's throwing that book around like this is horrible. And then the officer comes with the bag of Cliff Notes. But I'm like, yes, yes, efficiency. Yes, there we go. <laughs> well, you know, when you don't have to write a paper on it, or even when you do have to write a paper on it, it's good to have read it in a couple of different formats. 
to really understand it. My son yeah. read, he's a freshman in high school, and they read Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah. And so they suggested, they're like, we'll provide them a copy, but if you'd like them to have their own copies so they can make notes in it, here's the copy that we suggest. It was so cool because the left side had modern English and the right side was Shakespeare's English. So you could read Shakespeare's English and read a modern translation of it oh. right next to each other. Well, that's line cool. for line. It was great. It was really good. That is really neat. And it was really well done too. It, it was, was like, well done. Oh, yeah. Really well Cause done. Because I loved Romeo and Juliet. And I, I read that a hundred times. Yeah. It was one of the that's one of the very few books that I've read multiple times. I'm not a rereader. Right. But mm. Romeo and Juliet, much ado about nothing historical. Yeah. Uh-huh. I loved Shakespeare. That yeah. I loved it for yeah, some I reason. I always preferred a I mean, they always said, you know, you enjoy it more when you see it performed. So mm-hmm. I didn't do a lot of rereading of it, but yeah. I watched the version of Romeo and Juliet with Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio that like a million times. Was one of my I favorite love movies. It. My son didn't like it. I was like, How? what is wrong with you? I'm like, you don't know what I had to sit through. Right? <laughs> Well, now they've remade it yeah. with somebody else. And I'm like, I'm like having this whole ban on reboots, like quit rebooting it. There's a hundred good scripts out there that need to be made. Quit rebooting this mess. Yeah. Yeah. But I loved the the Romeo Juliet with Claire Danes and Leo. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Great. I thought it was really smart. It was a different way to look at it. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So then they talked about how the serial killer's motivation was forced attrition. And I'm like, attrition? It's not like when things contract. <laughs> like, maybe I need to look into this a little more. So, attrition and contrition are similar, but still different. So, particularly in the Catholic Church, contrition is sorrow for one's sins based on a selfless motivation for the love of God. Sorrow for having offended the Lord. Attrition is sorrow for one's sins based on the fear of punishment. So they have a a difference. Forced attrition. These people were afraid of the punishment. Right. Yeah, because he was going to murder, murder them, them in a horrific way. And they were sorrowful because he was forcing them to be. Attrition is also like when a company forces people to retire or has layoffs. That's mm. attrition in the workforce. So... Yes. Yeah. To both. Well, and Mills, he put it so nicely. He was like, okay, so contrition is when you're sorry because you love God. And attrition is because you have a gun to your head. Yeah. 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 Exactly. That's it. Yeah. So then they're talking in the precinct or whatever about how women are taught to yell fire and not help. Now, I'm so glad you brought this up because... I had forgotten that. I just had forgotten that. And okay. I think it's it's so interesting. Were you taught that? I remember being taught that, but it was also around the same time that this was out. Okay. You know, and I had kind of forgotten that that, that was something that we were told. That that help is just not some people don't want to get involved in help. Okay. Because it, it puts them there. in danger, right? Uh-huh. And that's what I was told. And so if you yell like fire or something like that, then everybody starts to panic and run. And then it causes a distraction that you can get away. Okay. You're just looking, you're not trying to stop what's happening to you as much as you are trying to find that window where you can get away Way from what's from. happening to you. Right. Right. So that was, I remember being taught that I'd forgotten it until huh. you said that. Yeah. And I was never taught that. No, never. So it was completely new to me. And it was funny because 
I watched this and later that week I went to do a volunteer thing at school and I was talking with another mom and we mentioned that, oh yes, you yell fire and I've taught my children this. And I was like, okay, that seems a little counterproductive to me. But so I like, let me do a little research. Here's an article about should I yell fire? And most people and this school of thought is saying no, that generally if something's going to happen to you, you're going to be inside of a building. And if you yell fire, people are more likely to run away out. They'd rather get out of a building that might be on fire than run to you and help you. Well, yeah, but that's the point. But then they're leaving you alone with your attacker. No, they're causing distraction. If you're in, a, in an isolated build, place of the building where everybody's in their offices and whatnot, and you start yelling fire and people hear it, they're going to come out into the hallways, out into places, and start running. Yes, but if you're in another office, they're well, going to run past you. Then no one's going to hear you. Not if necessarily. You, I, don't, I, think if, I think if you're in an isolated enough place that, that no one, it wouldn't cause a distraction for you, then uh-huh. yelling fire wouldn't cause anybody else to run either. Right. I think if you're being dragged, if, you, if you're in an area, like a public area, and you're being dragged or you're kind of like around the corner from somewhere and about to be dragged and you start yelling fire, people start running out of exits. It mm. becomes a chaotic situation. I think you can get away. So for instance, like in a parking lot, is what I'm thinking about. This happens at a parking lot. If you start yelling fire at a parking lot, people are going to turn around and look at their cars and now their eyes are aware. Mm. Guy wants to get away. Yeah. Eyes are aware. That's fair. But you're right. In the middle of, in a building, like if you're in a building somewhere isolated, probably doesn't do you any good. Right. This person suggested that yelling, help, I need police, is more likely to get somebody to call the police Mm -hmm rather than somebody calling the fire department, which isn't really who you need, they can be helpful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But that's your, it's deceitful. It's not asking for the right kind of help. Okay. So where did did this come from? Let's talk about that. Okay. But I got to say, somebody's attacking me. I'm yelling. Uh, All's fair. Well, I'm not yes. worried about being deceitful about no. what kind of help I'm calling no, no, for. No, 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 <laughs> no. And I don't think that that's what they meant. They're just saying that you might get not get the kind of help that you need. What you really need is a police officer who's got a weapon who's going to come to your aid, not a man on a fire truck okay, who see, may or may not have a weapon. I'm still, I'm not there. Like, I can't get on okay, board well, at let, all. Well, let's talk about where this came from, the okay. idea of where this came from. So there was a lady named Kitty Genovese in 1964 in Queens, and she was attacked and stabbed. And she tried to flee and yelled for help, and the man left, but then he came back when nobody came out to help her because she yelled help. People said it was because there was uh, people were in their homes and they didn't want to get involved, okay? Mm-hmm. There's more to this story. A New York Times editor, when he wrote about this, said you should counter the apathy that poor Kitty experienced by yelling fire because these people would be selfish. They might have called, you know, for a fire department and rather than let her yell out in the alley for 30 minutes and get murdered, maybe they, she'd have gotten some help. It's a tactic that really went unscrutinized 
for a really long time, people, even experts, suggested yell fire. But the truth is that when you study bystanders and how they behave, when you go back and you look, most people aren't apathetic. Most people will help you. They'll at least call the police. It had more to do with the situation that she was in because where she was, there were a lot of sex workers. The idea was that either she was playing to someone's kink or she was getting what she deserved. It what it really wasn't about people being apathetic. It was about people judging her and having an opinion about her. And they said, if you yell, help police, you're actually more likely to get the kind of help that you really need in that situation. And if somebody's pointing a gun at you, do you really want to yell fire? Yes. You want to yell fire at the person holding a gun at you. This this is not a trained dog. You're not giving him a command. I'm not calling for help. I'm calling for distraction. Fair. Okay, you could call the police and somebody's attacking me. And by the time that officer with a weapon shows up, it's done. I'm either dragged and abducted somewhere else. Right. Or or the deed is done. Right. I'm not calling for an officer. I'm calling for people's attention and a calling for a distraction so I can get away. That's fair. I'm I'm using the element of surprise. I'm using mm-hmm. and and I I can understand why like in that situation um they would label it as apathy. I don't think it's apathy. I think it's fear. Mm. Other people don't in too many situations. I think maybe it I think you're right. I think it depends on the area you're in. You have to know your area. Right. But I think in a lot of situations, say you're in a parking lot with your kids and somebody yells help. Are you going? No, you might call the police. Mm-hmm. By the time they're there, it's too late. You've, you've helped because you might help if they're abducted. Maybe you help get the police on scene quick. You uh-huh. can stay as a witness. You're not getting involved. You're not leaving your kids. If I'm in an area where I'm going to be, there is more likely to be a lot of other people with small children. Mm-hmm. They are not going to leave their children's side to come to the screaming aid of a woman yelling help. Right. They realize, they recognize what's going on there. It's fear and protection of your own right. and your own family. You wouldn't yell... I'm calling the police. No, I might. I might yell no first. Mm. I might yell no, but um, calling. What is that? They know. They know they can get it done before the police gets there. What does that matter to them? They know the police are on their way. Maybe they need to go. I don't know. I don't know. I think. I think it's a uh, situation dependent. But I don't know that fire makes a big difference as far as all that stuff goes. Well, there's but. a reason why just yelling it's illegal because it causes mass panic. Well, ex- exactly. And that's kind of why I want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I can understand. And you're right. I think the studies have shown that, that most bystanders and in a lot of areas are really helpful. And if you're in the right area, I think yelling help is completely appropriate. Yeah. But I think there's probably a good amount of time where it's not hmm. helpful, hmm. like at all. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. I don't know. That's not where I expected you to go. Really? You really thought that I was going to be against that? That's so funny. Yeah. So so where are you then? I'm so curious. I'm a yell help. Yeah, you're a yell help? I'm a yell call police. Mm -hmm. I'm being attacked. I don't know this person. Like, loudly and... I know. I'm not fearful. I'm not one of those people who feels like I'm going to be attacked. Mm -mm. I'm not a small woman, so I don't... don't I know, I've, but I was never really raised to be super fearful either. No. So I've never, just like, no, I can, ta- I can take you. I have elbows. That's right. I know what That's to true. do with them. That's true. That's true. 
And see, and maybe too, because my kids are bigger, I might be more willing to, well, my 14 year old is taller than I am and he would probably, he'd probably go running. Mm -hmm. He'd want to be the hero shot or not. He'd want to be the hero. Yeah. (laughs) So then they have fingerprints and I thought that whole part was really cool and really accurate, but we're going to talk about that after a quick break. Have you ever wondered what two Aussie dads, really inappropriate ones, would tell you if you asked them questions like, what if my kids catch me having special cuddles? Ooh, awkward turtle. Or is it okay to hide in the toilet and play games on my phone? Well, it better be. Maybe you want to hear our unique reviews of movies, beers, video games, etc. How about some cheeseburger spring rolls? Ah, uh, sure. Uh, if somewhere any of that tickles your fancy, then check out the Dad Zone on the Forge Audio Network. What's that? What do you do? All right, so we were talking about fingerprints, and I was really impressed that they didn't have the typical television show movie depiction where they put the fingerprint in and you get near instantaneous results of 53 million files. Aphis. Yeah, that are in. (laughs) Yes. We'll get there. Um, (laughs) In uh, the FBI's database that he said it could take three days. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's pretty interesting. So I was like, but how long does it really take? So I was was curious. Yeah. And I know it's somewhere between instantaneous, which it's not ever, not even now. And three days. Okay, that was the mid-90s. Is three days still a... Gotta be faster now. Yeah. Uh, A couple hours is what I... Okay, that's not bad. Yeah, is what I read. It's the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, APHIS, as you mentioned. Yes. It's a very efficient tool. It's been in development for... Over five decades now, which is kind of amazing. Ever since the 60s, when computers started to be something that people, especially like law enforcement, were able to utilize more effectively, then that started to, to come into really stringent development. This was something that they needed to do. Now there's talk that they're going to change the name of it to the automated biometric identification system because they're adding in things like irises and facial recognition into these. So it's not just a fingerprint analysis anymore. Now we have more ways of being able to identify people. Right. And those are separate databases that they had begun. So they're thinking about almost like combining them then? Yeah. uh, Like, yes. You know, because... Yes. Basically, they're they're all going to be part of the same system. Maybe not combined, but like... But the same, but the software, maybe not even the same software, but like within the same suite. So like Adobe has, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator Uh, mm -hmm. and all different kinds of things. So the same way, those are different programs, but a suite of programs Mm -hmm. that work in unison, this would be kind of the same thing. But they can't change the name because what the automated biometric, there Uh, is Abus. Abus? Abus. It's like Abus, but Abus. Abus. It's a very so we're small not, we're difference. Not, we're not adding an M then. So it's not biometric. We're going to just no, go... just a B. A-B-I-S. Uh-huh. Abus. 
which kind of sounds like an intestinal issue. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. <laughs> that phase. That's funny. <laughs> I'm like, don't mess with our acronyms. <laughs> Fingerprints, how unique are they? Well, Sir Francis Galton who was Charles Darwin's cousin, said the probability of finding two similar fingerprints is one in 64 billion, even when you take into account twins. Isn't that so interesting? amazing. I I always kind of thought, okay, well, someone a few hundred years ago may have had the same fingerprints as somebody who's living now, but, you know, it takes so long for that stuff to come around again that it wouldn't be an issue but no no 64 billion that that's that's, that's a lot it's, it's really going to take quite a long time to get around so back weird around again. because fingerprints if you just look at your finger they look the same as everybody else's right well yeah you know and, you know there's like different there's only so many different patterns you I know mean, circular and swirling and whatever yeah yeah so what the APHIS looks at is you have things called 10 prints or known prints, which are what they take when you get arrested, where they have all 10 of your fingerprints and they have really nice clean copies. But what they get from crime scenes are called latent prints or partial prints. And so to be able to match those up, the computer can only do so much. So latent prints have to be processed which I didn't realize they can't, you can't just take somebody's fingerprint and their latent fingerprint and stick it in because your skin is stretchy and Mm -hmm. all this stuff. So they have to kind of manipulate it a little bit to make sure that the computer is looking, is comparing apples and apples. And then there's 18 months of training that people who look at fingerprints have to go through even with this large computer that's so powerful it's it will spit out a few options okay and then it's up to a human who's had all this training to go through and really make the identification that's so interesting. Yeah. You're right, because on, you know, everything we see in entertainment, oh. it's always like the computer dings and yeah. it's like, da, it's like da, 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 da. oh, look, we have a partial fingerprint. Let's put it in the thing. And oh, and then it pops up with it, you know, their mug shot and their height and their weight and where they live and yeah, you know, who their first grade teacher was and, you know, all the stuff. Right. It's yeah. like super, super quick. Yeah. So no. there's this one episode of NCIS where the power's out. And they have to do some fingerprint matching. And so literally Abby has the team on the floor and they all have buckets of finger and they have to by hand go through. And she's like, you're swirls and you're whatever. And I'm crooks and whatever. And they go through this whole thing and they narrow down. And then she makes the identification by hand. And it took them like all night long. And it really would have taken them far far longer than that I, I guess luckily they were looking at only military base or something that you know a smaller database but you know like they had already narrowed but um, but it was interesting because I was like man people used to actually do that and yeah this scene well, in seven where they're like looking like you can wait someone else <laughs> you yeah know? you don't have to sleep on the couch in the hallway it's yeah totally but that's so else. funny how they're out there and mm-hmm. they just will not leave we see the murder of sloth. Oh, that one was that one was rough. That's creepy. It is super creepy. But that, it really, I want to know: is that possible? 
Oh, I don't know. That I didn't look up. Don't. Don't oh. Google that. I really... I, I feel really, like for your for the benefit of your mental health, do not Google that I one. Think, thank you. I think I'll, I'll take that as permission to yeah. not look that <laughs> no, up don't for look that up. social media. That is like... Ooh. It was such a creepy moment. It was so creepy with all the little air fresheners hanging from the ceiling and then he gasps and oh uh-huh. my gosh. But it really shows us what the long game that mm-hmm. this murderer was playing in order to fu- try and get some information about who this guy is, they pay an FBI informant guy who goes and gets them a list of flagged books from the library. And I'm like, flagged books? Okay, so I've heard about this, but I always kind of thought it was a movie thing. And it's kind of a movie thing, but it's kind of kind not. of real. It's kind. It's kind of well, real. Well, like even in even in Seven, you know, Mills is like, is this legal? And the guy, it's that's not about being legal. It's about What's narrowing it? our our investigation. That's all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it may have been illegal then. It's grayer now. It's gray. Okay, so as early as 1973. There was, the FBI was running a program called the Library Awareness Program, which is basically, we're going to watch certain books when they're checked out and kind of know who those people are. And nobody knew about it until there was an article published in September of 1987, 14 years after a possible start. It could have been earlier than that. Like, okay, so not out of the realm of possibility, probably where the writers of the script learned about it. Librarians even then were, they've tried to make it clear that they're not against helping the FBI in general, but they're kind of opposed to violating the rights of their patrons, which I'm like, you know, fair. Not everybody who checks out Catcher in the Rye. Oh, jeez. I hate that book so much. <laughs> I, I had to say that one. I have such a passionate <laughs> hatred for this book. I tried to read part of it. It's not very good. He's so emo. He's just so I I know, I know, and listeners, don't you dare go and like Don't go. at me. Don't at Jackie. Uh-uh. No, don't. And just hold it down. But I tell you when I read it, I just I, I see this very, very emo kid who just had no parenting. Yeah. You know, like I know it's what it's supposed to represent. I understand what it does represent to many people who resonate with the feelings that that the main character is is showing. I I kind of get all of that. And on the other hand, I'm like, put your big boy pants on and and learn some skills. It's kind of it <laughs> reminds me of the first book in the Twilight series. <laughs> okay, I there's a connection. I swear. Where in the first book, all Bella does is talk about how gorgeous the vampire is. She's not wrong. (laughs) But beating the same drum over and over. And I remember thinking this book could be 50 pages shorter and just tell the exact same story if she would just shut up about how gorgeous he is. (laughs) I get it. He's beautiful. You're drawn to him and you don't know why. Let's move on. See, and this is where you realize, oh, yeah, that's right. That was a young adult book for teenage uh, girls uh-huh. who just wanted to spend time fawning over. Yes. Yeah. And the subsequent books were better. Don't yeah. at me about that either. They're <laughs> fine for what they were. Yes. 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 And again, Bill is not wrong. 
<laughs> but you're right. Fair. Fair. <laughs> so there's this woman, uh, Allison Macrina, and she worked as a public librarian for about 10 years, but she's kind of spearheading the idea that people should have some privacy when it comes to their activities at a library. Because typically they're serving minority or underserved communities. And if you're monitoring that stuff, okay, chances are a lot of the people who are checking stuff out are doing it for research or curiosity, not because they have nefarious intentions. And you're putting an undue level of surveillance on people who don't have another way of accessing information. It's not a lot of people are going there to like look up how to make bombs because no, you just Google that. Yeah. Well, and that the idea is that if you're, yeah, exactly. But the idea is that if you don't have a home computer, you go to the library and do it just because you're looking it up. You're curious about it. doesn't necessarily mean you have any nefarious right. intentions. By and large, I, the, the people who even look up the most heinous things are not doing it for, you know, well, well yeah, you, you are a researcher. You look up weird things. I on look all up, the- if anybody were to look at my search history, I mean, you'd think I was trying to murder my husband for all the poison stuff I looked up last episode. <laughs> <laughs> How much mercury does it take to kill a person? <laughs> I don't, I love my husband. He bought me the book. I know he trusts me. You know, I make basically all of, the food that he eats in a day. I make his breakfast. I make lunches for him. I make his dinner every night. You know, oh yeah, so sweet little happy homemaker. But sweet. Um, <laughs> but you're but, right. I, you know, you look up all kinds of stuff, but it kind of brings up a point. You're right. Looking at the library does put an undue amount of surveillance on a disadvantaged group who may not have computers at home. But to be fair, for all of us who do have computers at home, the NSA is looking at us too. There's an undue Probably. pressure on both sides of the aisle. And, and so I, I feel like she's not wrong, but she's not right either. It's mm. not an undue amount of pressure that isn't equally distributed among all. Mm. All people are surveilled at this level. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But I, I haven't done enough research to be uh, terribly contrary. But I think it brings up a question, though. The it, privacy it of protecting books and protecting the ability to go and read. Well, and mostly what they're talking about in this particular article is what you're looking at on the computer, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're able to access what you're accessing on that computer, including your email and its entire contents, you know, because you have to have a special login at the, at the library, Mm -hmm. you need to have a own personal login so that what you look for and what somebody else looks for is I guess logged, but the the thing is, the thing that they have an issue with is that if the FBI asks them to for this information, they're not allowed to tell their patrons that they've been asked for this information. Right, and this is where it gets sticky. Yes, because it's that, um, and it's really uh, just a question of what people want. I, you know, do we want more security at the at the sake of less privacy for you know? Or are we willing to forsake a bit of security and the ease of finding these kinds of people, these serial killers, 
uh, for the sake of more privacy. So right. which way do we want to go? And I think there's a debate on both sides of the aisle. Um, but I don't think there's any easy answer to this one. No. And the, the, a lot of the library librarians who are arguing against this is saying that the FBI isn't really supposed to surveil U.S. citizens without reason. And the latitude that they have to be able to request this stuff, they don't even need to have a search warrant. Nope. To ask for this. Because they're not going for a person. They're just narrowing a database. They're just narrowing a suspect pool. And that's, and yeah, but what if you end up in that suspect pool for no reason? It's it's, it's sticky. The surveillance of citizens, I I don't think I can get on board with that so much. It's, you know, there's, I mean, you got to have a reason to look at stuff. You got, I would like for them to have a reason to come look at the search history on my computer because I've made a threat against somebody or I've behaved in a way that's inappropriate outside my home and not have them just say, well, you're looking up some really sketchy stuff on your computer, Christy. I'm like, oh, I know. I make a podcast about it. That's does what it, I do. Does it mitigate your personal feelings of invasion if you know who they're looking for? If you knew that in your community... In your community, there was a serial killer, and they are desperately trying to stop this serial killer. Would you willingly say, yes, rule me out so you can move on? Knowing that they don't have a script. I don't know. It's a guilt trip, right? It's totally loaded. Because it is so loaded because, no, I don't, I don't want them to come poke through my stuff. It's not fair. You don't have any reason to look at me other than the fact that I happen to live in this community. Right. Nope, that's an invasion of my privacy. Now their job is harder. Are you okay with that? Yep. Okay. I am because we don't lock up a thousand innocent people to make sure that one guilty person goes to jail. But okay. That's fair. But they're not locking you up. No. They're just saying. But that, that's, that, that's like the logical extension. We're going to surveil people to a level that's inappropriate because we're trying to keep you safe. No, you need to do your job better. How do they do their job better? Well, they've got a lot more resources than I do. And one of them's a database that they got from the (laughs) library. Okay. (laughs) Okay. No, I, I have to say, this is a hard one. This is a hard one because I think, I think we all want to believe that they are trying to do the best that they can. And anybody with a missional mind can easily step on step on other people and they make mistakes when they're that missional about it. They mm-hmm. can easily get their sights set on and have a, a circular bias, right. a confirmation well, bias. And the, and so you have and to watch out for that it. kind this of is thing. How, this is how a lot of murders end up going unsolved because they assume the husband did it. And let's be fair, the husband usually did it. But <laughs> if you're if you get so focused that the husband did it and you're not looking at any other options, you might miss something. Well, and that is a process of investigation in general. You have to have your other, you know, your other roads, your other trees you're barking down. You've got to have some falsification as part of your investigation. Yeah. Just the question is how far is too far? Because see, your trash is public. Yeah. But your internet's not. Right. And so that's a line. Okay. So they can narrow a suspect pool or they can not narrow it at all. But we as the public have to decide what are we willing to give them as resources to make their job more efficient and keep them from getting their sights set on one person by opening up the forest for them to bark up and saying, here, figure this out. 
It's hard though, because it, it is a personal invasion, the, and you would definitely come under question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> yes, I would. So, so what was the final though? What did what? Where are we at now with it? Uh, librarians yeah. are putting up really funny signs. That's where we're at with it. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> We're sorry, due to national security concerns, we are unable to tell you if your internet surfing habits, passwords, and email content are being monitored by federal agents. Please act appropriately. That one's not so funny, but But a little double, but very informative. Uh, Large print: the FBI has not been here. And then in parentheses and tiny print, watch very closely for the removal of the sign. <laughs> How can you tell when the FBI has been in your library? The answer is you can't. The Patriot Act makes it illegal for us to tell you if our computers are being monitored. Be aware. Interesting. So I kind of love the, you know, stereotypical librarian get, kind of getting there. like. <laughs> By the way, I That's can't smart. Turn, yeah. I like that. So what are these books that are supposedly being watched? Mein Kampf, for sure. Yeah, well, and that was, you know, <laughs> on the list. And Dante's Inferno and all this stuff. That one I don't understand why. I don't feel like there's a lot of serial killers out there, like, obsessed with the seven deadly sins. Uh, I don't know. But, but there sure are a lot of kids who have to write a report on Dante's Inferno. <laughs> I feel like that's an exhausting exactly. type it just of... puts everybody on the list. Everybody's checked it out everybody. from the library at least once. I couldn't really find a list. So really? Only, yeah. I, and I looked... I did some look at. Oh, now you're really going to be on the NSA's watch list. <laughs> yes. yes. That's so the only places that I could find where it was talked about were like super sketchy conspiracy theory type websites. Oh. And they didn't have the list. They yeah, just yeah. said that there are 874 books on the watch list. How do they know that? Somebody claims to have a list, but they're not sharing it. I'm like, <laughs> conspiracy. So theory. now you're no better than the FBI. Yeah, well done. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they get this list back from their informant that they've paid in the little diner or whatever. And that's how they find John Doe's address. There's this altercation. And then the weird part is there are absolutely no fingerprints in in his apartment at all, which had we paid attention to the opening credits, we would have realized earlier rather than later when they tell us that he's been rubbing his fingerprints off because his fingers are all bandaged in the opening sequence because he's been rubbing his fingerprints off so that he doesn't leave fingerprints anywhere. So creepy. It is really creepy. I mean, wear gloves, man. Well, yeah, just this is where I'm at. But um, <laughs> but you know, I was he's like, all dramatic well, and shit. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's um it's a penance. Oh, that's an interesting take. It's it's a self preservation, but also painful penance that he's. That's interesting. Doing. I've never thought about it that mm-hmm. way. Yeah, I think so. And I was like, well, wouldn't he like leave blood somewhere? Even if he's just like <laughs> rubbing it off. And I'm like, well, this is 1995. It took him three days to match fingerprints. There's not That's so, so much with the DNA. Yeah. So again, we had to put it in context of when it was made and when it was released. That makes a difference. John Doe calls the police and taunts them. I was like, they came up with this because it's really happened. So five killers who've taunted the police. 
I the, can I tell you I love this list. I, uh, I, I know what I knew. I know these guys you're going to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I haven't even looked at your list, and I feel it coming. Yeah. Well, these guys are so. Yeah, I'm like fanning myself because yeah. it's like it's awful, and they're horrific human beings, but they're also really interesting. They're fascinating because yeah. it. You know what it is? It's it's this is a person. And if this is a person who is that ill oh. that they can do that, there's oh. that thought of, well, if somebody else can get a cold, I can get a cold. If somebody else can get cancer, I can get cancer. If somebody else can get this dark, can I? Yeah. There's that, ooh. And I would say most people know. Yeah, thank God. Cheers to that. Woo-hoo. Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, the Zodiac Killer. Of course. Of course. He killed at least five people in Northern California from the late 60s to the early 70s, and we still don't know who he is, despite the fact that there were detailed sketches of his face, and he wrote a bunch of letters to the police and the press. We still don't know who he is. We just identified no, that. No, the Zodiac Killer is unidentified the Golden State. Oh, thank you. You're yeah. right. That's who I'm thinking Golden of. Golden State Killer. That's who I was thinking yeah. of. Yeah. Then we have Dennis Rader also known as BTK, which his daughter wrote a book, and we're going to be reading that and talking about it later in the summer. It's I'm in the process of reading it. It is fascinating. I can't wait to read it. I, I just mean, want to know okay, her perspective. It's so interesting because I'm not a big fan of like reading about the murders. Like I might listen to a podcast that talks about the murders and a little bit of what happened, but I'm not so into like reading a book. I I don't want anything that glorifies them at all. Right. And this is interesting because she's another victim. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of interesting. But he killed 10 people between 1974 and 1991. And he sent a bunch of letters to the press taking responsibility for the murderer. And he suggested names for himself. They called him BTK, but he suggested that they call him the Poetic Strangler, the Wichita Hangman, and the Asphyxiator. Like, oh, geez. For Pete's sake. And he might have gotten away with it, except that in 2004, he started sending letters to the police again. Well, technology advanced. Yeah. (laughs) He didn't keep up with the times. Yeah. And good. 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 Jack the Ripper, oldest known serial killer. He taunted police with letters detailing his crimes. There, No one was ever caught. There were a bunch of letters sent to the police. It's hard to know which of them are legitimate and which of them are not. A journalist admitted writing some of the letters to keep the interest high so that he can continue to cover it. I, that's pretty sketchy. It's sketchy, but you know what? I I believe it. Uh, you know, yes. I mean, it's I, I'm oh, not I believe shocked. it. I believe it because it happened. Not shocked. I'm not. I'm surprised, but not shocked. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. All right. Then there's a man named the Axe Man of New Orleans, which wasn't anybody that I had known of. He murdered six people and left twelve more injured in 1918 and 1919. He'd break into people's homes in the middle of the night and kill them with something they had in their house, a straight razor or an axe. A common theory, this is weird, he wasn't caught, uh, but a common theory about why he was doing it was that he was trying to promote jazz music. What? (laughs) Run that past me again? He was trying to promote jazz music. And the reason that they think that that might have been his, it seems like such a weird way to promote something that you like. Um... (laughs) 
is that he wrote a letter to a newspaper and claimed that he wasn't a human being, but a spirit and a demon from hottest hell, and that he was going to travel through New Orleans on a certain day at a certain time, and any house that wasn't playing loud jazz music have somebody in the household murdered. So like some... Like a, like a demon or like, you know, Passover. I was about to say, it, <laughs> it sounds, sounds like, like a Passover. really deranged Passover. Yeah, kind of, yeah. And But nobody's heard from this guy since October 27th of 1919. So, so remember what episode we did a while back where we did a true crime from our hometown? Yeah. So mine was about the axe murder where they killed the, yeah. the couple with Might the axe inside. Might have been the same guy. They, yeah, they had suspected that maybe this was yes. either related or the same guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that he was traveling on... Yeah, the ferry, because the, it was at ferry. Well, he, the ferry, and then they think that the same guy from that same axe murderer from Georgia traveled on the railroad. Mm-hmm. This was research I did after the okay. podcast, that he traveled on the railroad, and there were axe murderers along, along the, rail, the railroad, railroad, that it was probably the same guy. Uh-huh. He was a serial killer in the late 19-teens. You know, 100 yeah. years ago. <sighs> and creepy, then creepy. finally we have uh, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, who killed six people and wounded seven more in New York City from 1976 to summer of 1977. And he left letters to the investigators. And yeah. So the idea that John Doe would taunt police made perfect sense. Perfect sense. Well, perfect. because these serial killers, they do think of it as art and it's like they, they want to be known for it. Uh-huh. It's not like modern art where sometimes you don't get it. You know, it's not, they're not modern artists. No. They think they are. They think they oh, are. Oh, God. They think they are. Ugh. Or in the case of like John Doe here, they think they're taking out the trash. They right. think that they're doing something for the world and setting it right mm-hmm. or bringing justice of some sort. And right. it's just all twisted. Ugh. It like creeps me out, but I still like talking about it. Why is that? It's so weird. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> John Doe turns himself in. In a twist. Nice. I kind of love that he turns himself in rather than having the whole, they hunt him down and catch him and you get like this police victory. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of stole the wind in there, out of their sails. Yeah. He totally did. Yeah. And I love the fact that we, we know this character, we see the effects of this character the whole time. And then all of a sudden it's like Kevin Spacey and you're like, whoa. And so back then, it was still a big name back then, Right. But, well, he'd just come off the usual suspects. Right. And that's why they didn't show his name in the opening credits, and his name was on no posters, no promotion of any kind. Nothing. It just, it's just like, what? Uh-huh. It's Kevin Space. It's Kaiser Soze. You know? But he doesn't play Kaiser Soze. No. You know, he's the same actor. You can tell little bits, right? But he really is this different character and it's just amazing well in hindsight now we know why he's so good at playing such a creep (laughs) (laughs) but anyway it is sad so he turns himself in they can't find anything about this guy from except for five years before he turns himself in they all they know about him is he's independently wealthy well educated and criminally insane he says he's going to plead insanity and they'll never find the last two bodies unless the police cooperate. So what is the 
criminal defense of insanity. Ooh, boy, we this hear, is a big one. We hear about it all the time, right? We do. Okay, but it's really actually very, very rare. Only about 1% of all felony cases in the United States involve an insanity defense. And when that defense is asserted, it's only successful in about 30 cases every year. So what does that mean? Well, there's different tests and rules that apply depending on what state you live in as to what actually constitutes being criminally insane. So talk about maybe like what's what's the effect of being criminally insane. If you win criminally insane, right, your consequences are, are kind of mitigated well, or you receive a different type of punishment. You, you would and, go to a mental institution right. for an indeterminate amount of time rather than to a prison, prison. At, right. for a, a specific amount of time. Mm-hmm. So there's the McNaughton rule test where a criminal defendant can't understand what they did or distinguish right, right from wrong. There's the Durham rule that says that the defendant has a mental disease or defect, and that is the reason they committed the crime. There's an irresistible impulse, which is used to determine whether it's a result of mental disease or defect that a defendant was unable to control or resist their own impulses. And uh, some states that have irresistible impulse also require that you've fall under the McNaughton rule. So rarely is irresistible impulse on its own something that would make you criminally insane or Mm -hmm. not negligent because of mental defect. And then there's the Model Penal Code, and that when you have a diagnosed mental disorder that you couldn't understand that your actions were criminal. So it used to be easier to have an insanity defense. John W. Hinckley in 1982 tried to assassinate President Reagan and got off on an insanity defense. And that caused a big shift in the burden of proof. So instead of, so instead of the, instead of the prosecutor having to determine and prove that you are insane or you're not insane, you have, as the defendant, have to prove that you are insane, and it's a much higher burden of proof. Right. To prove that you are insane rather than prove that you're not insane. I don't know. It's a big old confusing mess, but we hear about it in the entertainment area a lot, and it's actually a very small minority. <laughs> much like people looking up bombs who actually yeah. want to make bombs at the library. Very few Hinkley helped with this whole entertainment connection. <sighs> yeah. If you don't know, this yeah. is the Jodie Foster thing. Right. So, yes. Yeah, this is where he thought Jodie Foster needed him to shoot the president. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> that's a whole different intersection of crime and entertainment. <laughs> yeah. It's a really hard thing to think about because um, and I, I think it should be on the defense. I think if any defense that you have to present in a courtroom, you have to have the burden of proof to present it as an alternative theory. The insanity defense is no different. It's an alternative theory to the crime. Right. You're a criminal. No, I'm not. And I'm insane. Then we come to the end. And this is the real spoiler alert. So if you don't know how this movie ends, 
what is wrong with you? Why haven't you watched it? Are you like me and just couldn't handle it in the mid-90s when it came out? Go watch it. it. You used to be able to watch it on Netflix. Yeah. You can't watch it on Netflix anymore, but it's like a $2 rental on stream. I think three ninety nine so. on iTunes. No, okay. So I think I got it from somewhere else. It was $1.99. Yeah. It was cheap. Anyway, worth watch. Totally cool. It has, this movie has one of the most shocking endings in cinematic history. And it almost didn't happen. We haven't talked about Tracy at all. Not really. Not really. Gwyneth Paltrow, she's a darling. Oh, she's yes. so cute. She was such a darling in the mid-90s. So, mm-hmm. like, young and fresh-faced and pretty and good actress and, you know, all that. And she's married to Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt Mills, Detective Mills. The last two murders are Tracy has her head cut off and it's delivered in a box. And... Then Mills shoots John Doe, which I understand, but is so sad. The producers really thought that the ending was too intense. Well, it really was intense. It was very intense. And they thought it was going to be too hard for audiences. But the actors and the director fought really, really hard for that ending. And they the compromise they came to... Which wasn't really a compromise. It was the artistic vision of the director the whole time. David Fincher was that you never saw her head in the box. Mm-hmm. That it was alluded to. You understood that her head was in the box. And they tried to convince them that it should be one of the dog's heads in the box. Because they didn't have children yet. They had dogs that were like their babies. They tried, they wanted it to be a dog's head in the box because that would make him angry, but not, maybe not angry enough to shoot the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is, this is the whole twist. That's the final one. Because he walks in and he turns himself in and the whole purpose of this is actually, he is starting the final murders. He walks in there because he has to be with Mills in order for the final murders to take place. Yeah. And so they're out there and this is my favorite line. Everybody's favorite line. We have a box. We have a box. We have a box. You know, and then, you know, so Summer looks in it and, and realizes what's going on. And this is where Brad's pit, Brad Pitt's acting just next levels because his reaction as, as John Doe is explaining you know, that, oh, and your pretty wife. And he's explaining all of these things. And all of a sudden you see it registering. What? What? And then uh-huh. the box. Yeah, what do you know what's about in my the box? Wife? What's in the box? Because he gets it. He already gets it. What's in the but box? But he's in denial. He's in denial. What's in the box? And then you see him break down and then come back to it. And like that whole scene is just fascinating how he played that because uh-huh. it was so intense and, you know, felt that, that emotion. And then they got it wrong. There's not two bodies. Yeah. There's exactly. three. There's three. She was pregnant. Oh, yes. So there's this idea that like, okay, well, he says my my sin is envy and yours is vengeance. So he wants the last one to be him. And then Tracy is the, is the you know, right. victim for vengeance, right? But she was pregnant. There's three bodies. Uh-huh. It's so sad. And it's poor so Mills, sad. he didn't even know. He didn't know. <sighs> Kevin Spacey and his awkward way of being so creepy. He's like, oh, he didn't know. And you're just like, I want to shoot your wife now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm not not particularly murderous. 
Like, <laughs> you know, but I really, you know, it's, a, it's just an amazing what watching an intense movie like this can really reveal to yourself about your own character. Yeah, the whole movie, it did it. It created vengeance at the end. Yeah. And it makes you question, uh, would I shoot him? And boy, Mills is like, okay, <laughs> just uh-huh. executes him. Yeah, he's done. He's like, well, and I mean, it's career ending, but let's be honest, he probably was not coming back from this. Mills is yet another victim. He is. I mean, in addition to all these people and their loved ones being victims, because really, when a serial killer kills people, it's everyone who knew and loved that person is also a victim. Absolutely. Man, it's tough. So if you want to see any of the sources that we used... To inform our discussion, you can find us on social media on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, the intersection of crime and entertainment. You can find us on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod, or you can send me an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing your thoughts. What do you, oh, geez. Would you have shot him? Yeah. Would you have shot him? How did this movie affect you? Let's hear about it. Did yeah. you know? Did you suddenly start turning on the lights in your bathroom after you saw this movie? Like when you get up in the middle of the night, you know how normally you just kind of get up and stumble in there in the dark, so it doesn't wake you up too much. But mm-hmm. what if creepy Kevin Spacey John Doe is in the bathroom just waiting to kill you for your own worst flaw? The yeah. thing you know that's the, that's the thing too is like. They knew that this was the thing that was the worst thing about them, and they're being murdered for it. It's horrible. And it makes you think, like, which one am I? (laughs) Which one would I get murdered for, like, of the seven deadly sins? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, probably all of them would apply at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be honest. But, oh, it's so sad. It's so hard. Yeah. And what's sad is at the end of the movie... John Doe gets off easy, gets shot. Yeah, exactly. He didn't have to spend the rest of his life nope. in a mental institution. He didn't get tortured before he died for his deadly sin. He tortured all these other people. Yeah. It's not, a hard one. You wrestle with it. Yeah. And, well, see, and I'm not even like in favor of torture, even if people deserve it, but maybe a little bit. <laughs> maybe a little bit in the mental institution. Like, let's try and fix the unfixable, and that's your torture. You know, like torture with a with a positive spin at the end. I don't know. It's weird. I don't know what I think, man. Stop asking me hard questions. <laughs> It's so funny. So we're going to continue Serial Killer Spring (laughs) next time because we're going to dive into the first episode of Dexter. Fabulous show. Jackie had never seen it. I had never seen it, but I've seen it now. Oh, I love this show. Yeah, it's it's really good. I'm a fan. I think there's a lot of great acting. There's a lot of thoughtful, uh, intriguing writing. Yeah. And there's some legitimately funny stuff. I mean, like legitimately. Like really like funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we'll get into all that next time. We thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you again soon. See you next time. Forge audio. Dream it. Build it. Share it.